We're about to uh, invest a little less than 0.59% of your week to uh, think through a book in the Old Testament that's hard to find, that's hard to pronounce, that's hard to spell, and that is hardly read today by most Christians. And I'm, I'm thinking about the book of Habakkuk. So uh, feel free to use the table of contents in your Bible if necessary. It's no problem. If you're using the Ryrie Study Bible, like all truly spiritual believers do, uh, New American Standard Translation, you'll be looking for page 1443. But uh, while we're going to invest uh, about 50 minutes of this week doing all this, well, let me whet your uh, your appetite uh, a little bit. Number one, uh, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable. And Scripture is one of the, or Habakkuk is one of the books of Scripture. So God speaks to us through His Word. Uh, but specifically, this is a book that totally focuses on Essentially, the topic we're dealing with in this mini-series, what's a Christian to do when the world's falling apart, uh, when the foundations are broken? Uh, what should we do? And we're saying that rather than panic, we ought to pray, plan, and persevere with a perspective rooted in feelings, uh, rooted in faith over feelings, realizing uh, the now is important, is real, but it's not ultimate, and it's only temporary. And God's got all eternity to make sure everything works out just right, and he will do that. Now, let me uh, paraphrase a scholar, pastor, person, Eugene Peterson, on this book. So bear with me as I read with a little bit of modification. Living by faith is a bewildering venture. We never know what's coming next, and many many things turn out in ways we could never have anticipated. Many believers, especially new Christians, tend to assume that they will be exempt, at least for the most part, from the most painful dead ends and muddy detours of life. But the fact is, God's people in this world don't get immunity from suffering, heartbreak, and pain. All of this being true, the prophet Habakkuk is a welcome friend for believers as we deal with the inevitable suffering and pain of life under the sun. Most prophets in the Old Testament, most of the time, speak God's word to us. They're preachers calling us to listen to God's words of judgment and salvation, confrontation and comfort. They call on us to see God as he is, not as we might wish him to be. Most of the Old Testament prophets are in your face assertive, not given to tact nor diplomacy, as they insist we pay attention to God. But Habakkuk speaks our word to God. He gives voice to our bewilderment, bewilderment and articulates our puzzled attempts to make sense of things in the midst of our personal tragedies. Habakkuk insists that God pay attention to us and he does so with a prophet's characteristic no-nonsense bluntness. Habakkuk's bafflement can reduce, be reduced to a single sentence. Lord, you don't seem to make sense. 
as I look around my portion of your world. But this prophet who stands by our side in our pain does something beyond expressing angst. In his pain, he waits and he listens and then begins to pray and to live with a renewed and deepened faith commitment to God. And he insists to his readers, including to you and me, that the life of faith, even in our most painful moments, even in the midst of uncertainty and disorientation, is real life in its fullness as it is and must be in a fallen, broken world. Habakkuk starts his book exactly where we start in our puzzled complaints and doubts. But he doesn't stay there. He moves from assuming the mechanisms of the vast universe of time-space history can and should be fully explained to human beings under the sun. And he rests in a truth about God that he can understand, namely, every detail of history and every moment in our lives fits into God's plan and purposes. The Lord is in his holy temple on our first day, on our worst day, and on our last day in this world. Let all the earth worship him. That's pretty good. Uh, the book of Habakkuk uh, shows us that God honors honest questions from his kids. Uh, and we'll see him ask the kind of questions a lot of us wonder sometimes. And I think he gives us the ultimate answers to that. Uh, let's pray for teachability to God's word today. And as is our custom, let's pray for those who protect and serve, including peace officers, firefighters, and our active military. And um, Eric, Ward, lead us in prayer in that direction. Would you please? Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Excuse me for a second. Yeah, just checking. Yeah, the uh, book of Habakkuk looks like this. Uh, it starts in the abyss of problems and pains and questions that can't be answered uh, in his own mind. And he's just kind of perplexed. And he actually throws some questions at God. And God actually answers this prophet. He doesn't strike him dead for asking. I think the pivot around which the book revolves is the statement of 2.20. The Lord is in his holy temple, Sean, whether it looks like it or not, whether you can figure out how it's impossible or not. And he goes from perplexity to prayer and praise, and then a statement of positive perseverance. Uh, there's that statement at the pivot. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And one of the key statements of the whole Old Testament is, as for the proud, and Habakkuk starts as proud and self-righteous, something's wrong spiritually in ways thinking, but the righteous will live life in its blessed fullness by faith. Okay, uh, book breaks down like this. First, we're going to see prophetic perplexities slash and then a divine explanation answers to questions. Then we're going to see the profound reality paradigm changing perspective or point of view in 220. Then we're going to see prophetic prayer and divine exaltation. And finally, we'll see uh, the prophet rests in God rather than worshiping his worries. Okay, so let's look at. Uh, this first part, prophetic perplexities, divine explanation. We have a question, answer, question, and answer format here. Let's look at the question, uh, which after the title statement starts in verse 2. But look at verse 1. The oracle 
and an ability for this guy to have access to God directly, to communicate in a prophetic, supernatural way. Uh, prophets receive direct divine revelation. He's saying what I'm telling you now is direct divine revelation, which Habakkuk the prophet saw. Here comes question one. How long, O Lord, that's the God of our salvation, Yahweh, there in verse 2, that's referred to. This is a believer talking to God in perplexity over the unbelievable circumstances in and around him. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence and you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? It caused me to look on wickedness. You can see the self-righteousness, but we've all probably been there. Uh, yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored. And justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous and justice comes out perverted. Lord, why aren't you doing anything about the immorality in my culture? That's what he's really talking about here. Remember when he says the law is ignored, Jack, that this is a guy living in the Old Testament. If the pulpit represents the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we've got an Old Testament prophet who, among other things, is anticipating the Savior on the New Testament side, Lori. We're looking back at a provided Savior. So they're being... Uh, uh, in this setting, and this is a Jewish guy who's living under the Old Testament law because God gave them a foundation of an unconditional set of promises to Abraham, but on top of that, he built a superstructure of spirituality with training wheels, and he gave his Old Testament people the Old Testament law as a glide path to uh, the Savior. It was never designed to save. As Sonia well knows, the Old Testament law was never a ladder we could use to climb to God and earn our salvation, but it was a mirror that showed Israel and us today as we look at it that we desperately need a Savior. So he's on this glide path, and here's the thing. As a proud citizen of the nation of Judah, he knows God's entered into a covenant, a contract with his people that says this, on top of the unconditional promises to Abraham, to Moses, Deuteronomy 28 stresses this, if you as a nation will submit yourself to the Mosaic law as a nation, because you're my covenant nation, you won't have any major wars, you won't have any major famines, you'll have a good economy, everybody's going to eat, you're going to have pretty stable conditions. But if you violate at a national level persistently and uh, consistently my law as a nation, I will discipline you in five increasing cycles of uh, intensity, climaxing with invasion and deportation to a different country. So he's looking around, and he, as a prophet, who normally calls the nation to line up with the covenant, line up with the Mosaic uh, law, he's saying, we're, we're in free fall. We are in total moral free fall. And this book is... The scholars said it variously, but it's, in my opinion, this is just a couple of years before the first of three attacks by the Babylonians come. The Babylonians come to take Judah out of her misery in three waves. This is not only biblical, but ancient history in multiple ways validates these numbers. In 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon comes to Israel, amongst other places, 
and he takes a handful of the Jewish young elite back to Babylon with him, including Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. That's 605. So they become a vassal, uh, kind of dues-paying member. Uh, we won't destroy you if you send us a lot of tributes, kind of thing. 597, the Jews are rattling the chains. They're still violating the Mosaic Covenant. They're trying to make deals with Assyria and Egypt instead of trusting God to solve the problem. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes back a second time, 597, and he takes about a couple of thousand Jewish people back to Babylon along with a prophet named Ezekiel, which is why Ezekiel says, I was by the river Kibar in Babylon when I saw this vision of God. And then, unfortunately, so God is warning them, and he's doing what he said he would do when they're violating the covenant at an unbelievable extent, to an unbelievable extent, uh, and it just keeps getting worse. And uh, in 586, finally, the third and final visitation, invasion by the Babylonians results in the destruction of the nation, the destruction of the temple. Solomon's temple is destroyed, and most of the nation is deported for 70 years to Babylon, just like God said would happen if they did that. So uh, Habakkuk's living just before all this starts happening, and he is looking around at the immorality and the unconcern by God's people, his ethnic uh, covenant Old Testament people for God's law. Uh, the, the, the people running the country are evil. Uh, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoachin, and Zedekiah are all terrible kings, immoral. And he's just saying, hey, God, why don't you do anything? Uh, we're your covenant people. We've broken the covenant. You're not doing anything. And God says, look at verse 5. And the first part is six. I am doing something. I'm doing a lot you can't see, including something you're about to see, and it's going to blow your categories. Look among the nations, Habakkuk. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Because I'm doing something in your days you're not going to believe, even am I tell you. And you're going to argue about my answer. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. That's their ethnicity, better known as the Neo-Babylonian Empire, which you can study in ancient history or in biblical writ. They both basically say the same thing. And he's saying, you, you guys are just about under the fifth cycle of discipline, and you're going to get clobbered by the Babylonians, and it's just a couple of years away. God does not cause evil, but he permits evil. He's got He's the ultimate cause of all things, but he has a different moral connection with evil than he has with good. In the same way, the Ford Motor Company is the ultimate cause for all the wrecks that are involved Ford Motor Vehicles, but the Ford Motor Company is not responsible if somebody gets drunk or high and gets behind a wheel and wraps it, wraps their car around a telephone pole. It's the Ford Motor Company is the ultimate cause. They're not the blamable or responsible cause. And so God's saying, yeah, I'm, I'm working this all out. And just like I promised you in Deuteronomy 28, after the nation breaks the covenant to a certain extent, they're going to be invaded and eventually deported. And that's what's happening. Uh, look at verse 11. Then he says, uh, hey, I know how pagan and how corrupt the Babylonians are, but I'm going to use them as my tool for just this moment in history. Uh, the last verse, verse 11 in this second question. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on through and go down to Egypt and give them some grief. But, God says, they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. They worship themselves in the military power. Sounds like North Korea today. So the first question is, God, why aren't you doing anything? First answer is, I'm doing a lot, 
You can't see, including raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to discipline my people, Judah. So you're going to have to trust trust me on that. Okay. Now let's look at the second question. Basically, the second question can be summed up. How can you use them, Lord? They're worse than we are. You know, uh, you can't expect unbelievers to play by our rules. And uh, yeah, I used to I used to use this illustration from time to time. You know, if you go into your average convenience store in the middle of the average workday, uh, the gal working behind the counter usually isn't very friendly, kind of surly, kind of throws the change at you. And, you know, I, I kind of think, man, if you've got a job, you need to try harder than that. And then I think, well, at least she's not sitting at home waiting for her check to show up. You know, at least she's making some kind of effort. And she's probably made some real bad choices with men. And the guy she's living with now probably beats her up. And what she got to be happy about? You know, I, can, I can't expect unbelievers to play by our rules. So uh, while we don't want to enable, I think maybe it can explain some of the tendencies. But just look at uh, this second question. Look at verse 12 and 13. Uh, Habakkuk basically giving God some theological instruction, which is not really necessary. Uh, uh, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? And because of that, we're not going to die, no matter what happens. I know you've made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you're going to send the Lord Jesus, and he's going to be the Savior. Uh, you, Lord, have appointed them, the Babylonians, a bunch of pagans, to judge us. And you, O Rock, have established them to correct you who, whose eyes are too pure to approve evil, you who cannot look on wickedness with favor, why do you look with favor on, on them? Why do you let them beat us up? Or those who deal treacherously, why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? We're bad, but they're a lot worse, so what are you doing? And I think God would say, well, I'm not done yet. This is part of a process, uh, but you're going to have to trust me on this. Now look at verse uh, one in uh, chapter two. He kind of goes on with that same theme for a couple of verses, and then he just kind of does the old thing the little kids does. I'm going to I'm going to stand in the corner and hold my breath until I turn blue. So you'll give me more ice cream, mommy, or something like that. He's just going to pitch a fit, basically. He said, I'm going to stand on my guard and wait for you to give me a good answer because there's no good answer why you would let the Babylonians destroy our nation here. And he was upset that God wasn't destroying the nation previously, you know. But uh, I'm going to stand on my guard post, station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he, God, will speak to me next and how I may reply when I'm reproved. He's going to have an answer, but I just can't wait to see what it is, is basically what he's saying there. So we've seen two questions. First answer, look at the second answer. Uh, Verses 2 through 19, and look at verse 2 of chapter 2. Then the Lord answered me, and he said, write this down. (laughs) Don't forget this. This is important. Record the vision, inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. They are coming, and they are going to destroy you, just like I said would happen. You deserve this as a national entity. For the, and, and sometimes, you know, you wonder, are we too far gone to even pray for national revival in modern America? And my feeling is, as long as there's life, there's hope. I'm going to pray for national revival every day until it happens, or the whole thing just tumbles into oblivion and we become, you know, a vassal nation to China or something, whatever's going to happen here. Uh, record this vision, scribe it on tablets, don't just put it on a post-it note, I mean, just bang it into, you know... Uh, stone tablets, uh, 
that the one who reads it may run. You know, like Jesus says, when you see signs of the abomination of desolation, if you're a believer in Jerusalem in the end days, you better get out of town as quick as possible. And woe to those who are pregnant, not because it's bad to be pregnant, but because it's hard to run when you're pregnant. Right, Stephanie? You can say that. Uh, For the vision set for the appointed time, it hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it certainly is coming. It will not delay. And I think there's some sarcasm there, a little bit, uh, righteous indignation there. Uh, but he's thinking, you know, if this is like 608, which is when I think this is being written just a few years before 605 and then 597 and 586, uh, it's, it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen next week, but give me a couple of years and it's going to start happening. And then as far as the Babylonians, they're going to get theirs too, in very short order from a historical point of view. Now look at verse 4. Man, if we had a whole lot of time, we could say a lot about this verse. I'm just going to kind of throw some some stuff at you here. Uh, I really can't tell you how important this verse is. It's cited in a couple of key places in the, in the New Testament. And uh, some have said this is kind of the thematic uh, core of the whole Old Testament when you think about it. Behold. Now, uh, Habakkuk has been angry at God, self-righteous, thinking he's got higher standards than God, thinking he knows better than God. And he's all upset and all stressed out and he's all messed up spiritually. But God permits him to do that. Just like a lot of times when you discipline a four-year-old. Uh, and I have experience with that just in the last 24 hours. If I look a little shaky, I've had a close encounter of, of, uh, of the third type uh, with uh, six uh, kids all four years old or under that either love me or hate me. And it varies. You know, It's kind of like being a pastor. Everybody either loves you or hates you. It, and it changes. They move around. Uh, but I'm a little shaky. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you, you know, they just kind of get upset and you got to kind of calm them down. And it's always uh, the twins fault or my fault or something. But uh, Habakkuk's all shook up and God's saying, calm down. OK, behold, the, the proud, as for the proud, like you have been, your soul is going to be all upset, and all strung out and you're not going to have any peace and you're not going to be where you need to be. But the righteous, the person who's been made righteous, like Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, but the one who's been made righteous, who has embraced the promises of the Savior, or for us the provided Savior, will live, not just exist, will live life in its blessed fullness, even in a fallen world, by faith, by trusting and obeying, instead of questioning and being a critic or a supervisor of God. And we just don't have what it takes to fulfill those roles. Now, uh, the reason that uh, Lynn and Vince are here is we're going to announce the uh, publication of the McCoy paraphrase of the book of Habakkuk. And it's actually that thick. You know, you got three chapters when God wrote it. And when I when I rewrite it, you know, it's going to be that thick. But here's what that verse means. OK, if you're watching on PowerPoint here, boom, boom. But as for the proud, Habakkuk at this point and Asaph, who is he? Hold your place. Go back to Psalm 73. Last week we looked at Psalm 73 and we saw a guy who was uh, really stressed out and angry at God because it, his world didn't make sense. I mean, so often bad things happen to good people and they do. And even worse, a lot of times really good things happen to bad people. And that does happen in the world as it is now. It's broken. It's messed up. It's a fallen world. God's going to uh, when he's done with his purpose for permitting it, it's going to totally change it out completely. 
But yeah, you know, uh, in Psalm 73, Asaph just kind of whines for 13, 14 verses. And uh, he was just kind of self-righteous. And he says uh, in verse 15, as he's rejecting his preliminary conclusion that God's asleep at the wheel, he said, you know, if I had gone to synagogue and said that, I knew I would have been saying the wrong thing. I would have betrayed all the stuff you promised us and all the stuff you've done for me and the nation prior to this. But when I pondered and understand how to connect it all together, I couldn't do it until I came into the sanctuary of God and I perceived the end of the unrighteous, the unrighteous, unregenerate folk. You set them in slippery places and so on. We'll come back to that in a minute, but go back to Habakkuk 2, 4. But as for the proud, and he's not talking about Babylon here, he's talking about Habakkuk. He's talking about the believer who feels like he or she ought to be God's critic and God's supervisor instead of God's child uh, and God's servant. Uh, as for the proud, Habakkuk like you at this moment, and Asaph back in the first part of Psalm 73, his soul is not right within him because he's assuming roles he shouldn't assume. He's just not qualified for. But the one who's been made righteous by God's grace through faith, Abraham in the Old Testament is the classic example, will live life in his blessed fullness by faith, resting in God's stable person and program, including the eternity factor, embracing his or her proper role as God's child and servant. Uh, talking about the eternity factor, hey, Russell, come here for a minute. Let me, uh, this isn't original with me, but let me, me and Russell have worked at this, uh, this uh, visual aid here. This is, hold on to that for a second, my man. This, uh, this rope is going to be a timeline. Okay, this is a timeline. Now this this black part of the rope, this is the dash on your tombstone. You know, mine's going to say, Dr. Brad McCoy, he told you he was sick. 1953-2053. We're going to live to be, I'm going to live to be 100. I've already decided that. So this represents my 100 years, and this represents eternity. Now just think about eternity. Just go back. Go back, bro. Go back. Now don't fall off the end of this thing. Unravel it, man. Because this is my life. And you know, a lot of us spend like 80% of our life getting ready to really be able to do a little traveling in this little part right here, you know. Or something happened here we didn't like and we just kind of can't get over it ever, you know. That's a complicated timeline. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. We should have practiced. We probably should have practiced. We'd like to combine the performance with the practice, you know. Keep going. Keep going. Keep, keep going. Go. Go. Keep going. Keep going. Now let's hold, hold it taut. Hold it tight. Right? This is your life now. Now Vince, look up uh, John 3.36. Vince Zeller. Hold on, Russ. He, keep going, Russell. Keep going. Keep going. Watch out for Marlo. This is your life, man. Now, now, somebody like Riley, you know, we're all heartbeat away, and we're not guaranteed we're going to survive until next Lord's Day. But you know, if the Lord tarries and 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 you're blessed, you you got a lot to look forward to. Some of us are closer now. Maxine's going to live to be at least a hundred, but most of us won't live to be a hundred. But what if what if just hypothetically, you okay out there? Okay. 
what if, what if, you know, I'm convinced one reason God doesn't even try to explain how it all fits together, except he says, trust me, is because we're just simply not capable of understanding it yet. But let's pretend like he could reduce it down and explain it. So we we just totally accept all the inexplicable tragedies we've had to deal with. Daryl Humphrey's dying the way he did. How do you deal with that? Let's say God could do that, but because of our limited capabilities, it would take him a hundred years to explain it. Okay? He's not going to waste all your 100 years explaining what he's doing. Okay? You wouldn't have time for anything else. Right? And plus, we've got to eat and sleep, right? Stuff like that. So, re- read the, that verse for me, will you? Okay, read that first clause again. Yeah, Asaph and you, if you're a believer, have life on earth. And then you have everlasting life. It goes on forever, man. It, it don't stop. Let's pretend like God could explain it to us now, but it take a hundred years. You get on the other side, your capability goes up probably a billion fold. So that hundred year hypothetical explanation, which we need, and, it, and his children, I think, deserve at some level. This is why he gives us answers like Habakkuk that we can actually handle. Uh, let's say with our billion uh, times more effective capacity, it'll take him 10 seconds to make it make sense to us, as opposed to 100 years, and we don't have time for that. We've got other things to do. So, keep, keep going, Russell. Russell, keep going. Now, we're done now. Come on back. Come on back. back. Thank you, my man. Yeah. Yeah. Nice job, Russell. Hey, thanks for coming, man. Appreciate that. Yeah. So, uh, we've seen prophetic perplexities in general divine explanation. I got this. It all fits. You're going to have to trust me on that. Uh, don't doubt me. Just keep trusting and obeying. It's all going to work out. You know, uh, and after he says that, uh, verses 5 through 19 in chapter 2, uh, five different times he pronounces woe on the Babylonians. I got this. Right now it looks like they're masters of the universe. But in about 70 years from the fall of Jerusalem, the Babylonians are going down. In fact, you can date it precisely based on a lot of archaeology. October 12, 539 B.C., the Neo-Babylonians go down. And then you got the Medo-Persians come up. And you get all these fish, you know, eating the next fish, eating the next fish, which is why uh, Daniel gets this vision of uh, this uh, statue with the different components that represent these different nations. And this rock, uncut from human hands, hits the statue at its base, destroys it, stops human history. And then what happens with the rock? Fills the whole earth. Jesus is going to trump all this nonsense with his kingdom and your loved one who's a believer who's not with us today, Carolyn, will be part of that kingdom along with you and Jesus. And that's just the get started. That's just the first thousand years. And then you go into forever and ever. So God has his purposes. Sometimes you've got to fly the plane with your instruments because you can't really see in front of you very well with your own physical eyes. But God's got this. And then verse 20 of chapter 2 is really the pivot for the book. Um, 
Bottom line, despite Habakkuk's initial doubts and concerns, the bottom line is, the Lord is, even on your worst day, in His holy temple, in the control room, calm, cool, and collected. Let all the earth be silent, rather than questioning, doubting, pouting. Let's be silent before Him. Uh, that should kind of sound familiar. The Lord is in His holy temple. A couple of weeks ago, go back to Psalm 11. You know, we started this mini-series interrupting our study of Acts, which will begin again in February, Lord willing. But uh, yeah, we started this series a couple of weeks ago in Psalm 11. And uh, as you're turning there, just to remind you, in the Lord I have taken refuge, no matter what happens. I've just pre-decided. So stop telling me, flee from our responsibilities, doubt, pout, and drop out. Even though the foundations are being destroyed, the righteous can predecide. They can keep doing the right thing because verse four of Psalm 11, the Lord is in his holy temple. That sounds like Habakkuk 2.20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Now, today that'd be a copyright violation, but this is all uh, uh, public domain, you know, scripture. So these guys can uh, use the same concepts. You know, there's a lot of hard things in the Bible, Michelle, but the main things are plain things and they get repeated a lot, Scott. Like the Lord is in His holy temple, even on your worst day, even on your best day. Uh, he knows what's going on. You can, you can trust Him on that. Go back to Psalm 73. The eternity factor and the fact that God, uh, works subtly but surely now and dramatically and climatically in the future is just the way it's going to work, whether you like it or not. And, you know, there's only one God and you're not Him and neither am I and it kind of bums me out when I think about it, but I'm getting over it. And, you know, I just don't have enough information to legitimately second guess Him. But He gives us enough information we can and should trust Him. Go back to Psalm 73. Uh, you know, He was really upset because of the pornographers and the drug addicts and the abortionists and the ISIL people of the world that seem to be conquering and killing and raping and doing whatever they darn want to do to everybody. Uh, uh, when I tried to figure out how you could use all that until you planned God, it was troublesome. I couldn't understand it until I perceived their end, one heartbeat away from the justice bar of God. And rather than envying them, they are on slippery, slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. They're destroyed in a moment. Utterly destroyed by sudden terrors like a dream, their earthly success uh, just goes away at death. And so he says in verse 21, when my heart was embittered, when I was proud and my soul wasn't right, when I was pierced within, I was like a dumb animal. I was doing the wrong stuff. I apologize. Nevertheless, you didn't go away. You let me just cry it out, just like a little four-year-old will. And eventually they come back and hug you and tell you how much they love you because they do and they know you love them. And God will let you do that. And I've cried a few times in the last couple of years because of stuff I've seen happen to people I love. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you because you've taken hold of my right hand. And here, Vince, this is a great life verse for you, even if you live in Texas. okay? Probably you need it more in Texas than Oklahoma because we're closer to heaven than you are. With your counsel, you'll guide me through the ups and downs and the tragedies and the triumphs of my life and afterward receive me to glory. Come think of it, who I, I in heaven but you, and besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart will fail. God will never fail us. 
But our flesh and heart's going to fail. And that's a promise. You know, we, we can't live forever in this body. It's not going to happen. How about the rapture event? First thing that happens is your body gets changed, right? And then you get taken up. My flesh and my heart will fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion. Everything I need forever. And he goes on. Go back to Habakkuk chapter 2. So uh, when you look at, if you write and, and draw things in your Bible, I would definitely circle 220. And say so that's kind of the book kind of goes down to that and then bounces up from that floor, as it were, and goes from there. The Lord is in his holy temple. Rather than doubting and questioning, we need to express our honest questions to God and cry it out and then move on from there. So we've seen perplexities and explanations and a paradigm changing perspective in verse 20. Now let's look at uh uh, the humbled prophet praying and praising God. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shig Eonoth. And one translation says with orchestra, but J. Dwight Pentecost says that means according to a tune that was well known at the time. Like, uh, you know, what... Uh, like amazing grace can be sung to peaceful, easy feeling from the eagles. You know that? It fits perfectly. You know, some might say amazing grace uh, sung according to the tune of peaceful, easy feeling. Something like that. So here's the thing. That's, that's really important. We'll say something about that at the end of this, uh, at, at the bottom of verse 19, chapter 3, about why this is important. We're singing this. This was written to be read, studied, and sung. Okay? So James, before next Sunday, if you could, just kind of put this to music in English for us, okay? And when you're done, I'll give you some more stuff to do, like wash my car, okay? If you could. But anyway, uh, this is the prayer of Habakkuk, and it's written to be sung. And he says, Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. I fear you, and I also fear for my nation, because they're going to be disciplined, but we deserve it. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known in your wrath and your discipline. Remember mercy. So rather than questioning God, he's submitting to God's purposes and praying for the best. Rather than panicking, he's uh, praying, planning, and persevering. Look at uh, verse uh, 4. We go from that prayer to a description of God's power and purposes uh, with references to earlier major events during the Exodus and even during the Judges. When you knit all this together, it's a lot of a complicated biblical tapestry, but let's just highlight a couple things about God's power he's affirming. Look at verse 4. His, the Lord's, God's radiance is like the sunlight. Uh, his, he has rays flashing from his hand. That's called the Shekinah glory, which Jesus veiled during his life. Otherwise, he'd blow people away except at the transfiguration. But he receives it after the resurrection, doesn't he? And and because he's so awesomely amazing, Nicole, there is the hiding of his power because we can't handle it. You know, I think the reason we don't get a more detailed explanation why this happened or that happened or this happened is because we just can't understand how all the 10 trillion pieces fit together because we can only process about 3 or 5 or 12. Even with a computer, just a... A finite number. God has an almost finite number of pieces in the puzzle, 
And it would take at least a 100 years now to explain it. They'll take 10 seconds on the other side. Uh, and in the meanwhile, just saying, trust me, based on what you can see that I'm doing and have done and will do. And your salvation and the cross uh, should help you there. Uh, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the uh, joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. So there's a hiding of his power. He's got to limit... Uh, things he could do to us and for us just because of our limited capacity to process it. Now, look at verse 13. So, God is uh, amazing. Uh, Our heads can't totally handle it. But then verse 13 shows you God's heart. Uh, Even in the midst of your discipline you're about to send to Judah and his uh, generation, uh, you went forth and you go forth for the salvation of your people. He's looking at the bigger good, the bigger picture, and his plan doesn't change. And basically, I think in this section, Habakkuk saying, Lord, you're big enough and smart enough to run the universe without my help. You know, And that's, that's sometimes hard for us to swallow, but that is true. Uh, Messer masterpiece. Now, the Zellers haven't seen this. If I were to tell you that is a masterpiece, you'd say, well, you're, yeah, Brad, you're looking at modern art, and I don't get modern art, but it's fine. But in fact, that's just kind of an illustration of us looking at a couple of random pieces of a much a larger reality, and that's all we can see. And based on what I can see, I would say that's not a masterpiece. That's modern art at best, and probably just some kid painting stuff or with crayons or scribbling a couple of places. It is squared off, and I noticed that, so I don't think wind, rain, erosion does that, nor did it make Mount Rushmore. You know, you need intelligent design for complicated things, don't you? But look at this... Uh, Lynn, that is selective portions, all you can see now of that. And I say, that's pretty good, isn't it? That's a masterpiece. Wouldn't you say so? That's all we can see of our current crisis, and it's either say, that can't make sense, because I can't make sense of it. Obviously, God can't either. Or he'd sit down and explain it to me personally, like in five seconds. He's not going to do that, and if he tried, you wouldn't understand it anyway. Uh, You don't try to explain to an 18-month-old, uh, how antibiotics work when you take that 18-month-old kid to the doctor to get a shot. And, sh- and the, the kid can look at the mom like, why did you take me here for this lady to stick a needle in my rear end? I was, already, I was sick to start with, and now you're doing more to me. And no mom, any good mom or dad will hug that kid till he stops crying, but he's not going to sit the 18-month-old and say, let me explain uh, the germ theory of disease, Jimmy, Okay. Because he's just not capable of processing it, right? That's the masterpiece. That's what we can see now. God sees it that way. i got a feeling in heaven we're going to be able to see that. And it'll take maybe 10 seconds or less. Maybe we just will automatically be able to understand that just in our glorified condition. But that's kind of uh, what God says about that. And to me, that's a very fulfilling answer. But it takes faith and some humility to handle it. Now, the book ends... Uh, with uh, a mountaintop experience, uh, the bottom line, go to chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, rather than panic, the prophet rests in his faith in the Lord, even as he braces for the Babylonian invasion, and he, he, he cringes for his country because he's a good patriot, and I feel the same way. You know, at one level, you pray for national revival, you realize that just the stuff we're doing is so self-defeating uh, it's not sustainable uh, morality is morally as a culture, and uh, you re- realize we need uh, strong medicine, but you cringe at what it's going to be. 
So, you know, when you pray God will bless the country, it may mean He's going to send such, uh, you know, discipline on us that, uh, we hit rock bottom. It's going to be a painful ride, probably. But, um, rather than panic, He rests in His faith, embraces. Let's read those verses. Now, by the way, depending on what study Bible you're using, some people are kind of, uh, bracket portions differently, and a lot of people include verse 16 as the last part of, uh, this first unit, chapter 3, I personally, along with some other people I've read and studied with, I think that verse 16 begins the final unit that includes 17, 18, and 19. So that's the way I'm going to read it. And he says, Habakkuk, I heard all this input from God, and my inward parts trembled. I mean, it was an awesome experience to get a glimpse of how big God's person and program is, and also when he thinks about what's about to happen with the Babylonians uh, fulfilling the Deuteronomy 28 fifth cycle of discipline promises. Uh, As the sound of my lips quivered, decay entered my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the Babylonians to come hit us, for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us, and we deserve it. But here's my bottom line. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, and even if oil goes down to 25 cents a barrel, and I hope it doesn't. It did bounce up $2 the other day, so... right. Though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, there be no cattle in the stalls, even then, yet, I will trust and obey. I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation because I've got that lifespan here, which is real and painful. I don't deny it's real. I don't ignore it or explain it away. But I got all of that to look forward to. And there are some scars that you're going to receive on earth that can't be healed this side of heaven. But they will be healed in heaven and you'll be totally healed and totally fine with God and His program even though now we're often tempted to, to second-guess it. We're always wrong, but God understands that and He allows honest questions like we see here. Um, the Lord God is my strength. Whether oil prices are up or down, whether we're uh, living under Josiah, the last good king, and things kind of got a lot better, or we're under Jehoiakim, Chin, Zedekiah, these, these horrible kings, horrible uh, lawless kings. The Lord God is my strength regardless who's running the country. And He's made my feet like hinds feet. And he makes me walk on high places. So I have a different perspective than other people, other animals. The animals get up on top of the mountains can see the whole thing. We can get a feel that God knows how it all works. And then notice it says at the bottom, for the choir director, and this is James Mitchell, for James Mitchell on stringed instruments. So again, James... The Lord is telling me for you to write a musical based on the book of Habakkuk, but it's got to be ready by next Sunday, so no pressure there. But here's the thing I get from that. You know what? I'm a Bible teacher. I love this church. I love you, and I show you I love you by studying hard and teaching the best I can. And I think on my bad days, I'm still competent. On my good days, I'm pretty good. And that's all I've got, but I give you what I have. But... uh, the Holy Spirit takes the truth from your head and can move it to your heart, and that's where it needs to be. But it's almost like when you hear great worship and great content in the worship, it's just like it goes through your head and it kind of does a, 
a much faster process from your head to your heart. Do you, you get that feeling? You know? And that's why we, we need a little bit of both. You don't, you, you need the teaching to kind of give you where the, where the lines are on the road because there's a lot of things you can sing about that'll make you feel good. But we want to be singing about truth, true truth, as you have to say now, since the people don't believe in truth anymore. Uh, so my job is to kind of lay that out there, and the elders help us to kind of keep what we're doing within the lines of biblical, uh, moral, and doctrinal prescriptions, right? But there's just something about singing that fast-tracks all that good truth from our heads to our hearts. So... Uh, as, as you know, I'm. I would love to be able to lead worship or sing or play guitar, but I'm not able to. But um, just driving back from Tulsa yesterday, I found this old Phil Kagey album and uh, CD. And you know, Phil Kagey's been around, you know, since 1812. You know, uh, he's worth like the world's greatest guitarist. If you don't know who he is, but he, he's had 200 albums or something. But I had this uh, album uh, CD. Nobody uses CD anymore. Chris doesn't use CD. You're on what Spotify or whatever? Yeah, something like that. Well, I'm I'm still kind of I'm still hand cranking my CD player as I'm driving with one hand, 75 miles an hour down the Turner Turnpike, you know. But uh, yeah, I just listen to songs, man. Just move all this stuff I've been dealing with in this week's thing with Habakkuk just down in the, into my heart. I went, wow, that's it's amazing, and God understands that, and so He specifically says, sing this. You're going to need to really move this. From your head to your heart. Uh, take this to heart. God honors honest questions from his kids. When Mary says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. How am I going to explain this to my fiance? <laughs> you know, uh, he said, well, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. You know, he, he doesn't say, how dare you question God? He just says, let me explain as best you can. You know, um, that kind of thing. And here you have the same kind of thing. God could have just struck Habakkuk dead. You know, Allah wouldn't have put up with this. You know, the God of the Bible, the real God, uh, looks at the heart, and this guy's grappling honestly, and a lot of us have grappled with stuff the last couple of years that don't make sense. And uh, I think God honors our honest questions. Uh, and he does give a sufficient, more than a sufficient light and truth about himself and his person and his program, so we can trust him, uh, even in the worst of our circumstances. As Sonia sings so beautifully, and she sings everything beautifully. Uh, when you can't see his hand, what? Trust his heart. You're going to have to know what his personal program is. Because if you're just assuming if I'm a believer, I love Jesus, and I do the right stuff, only good stuff's going to happen to me, you got, you've got a false assumption, and you're going to get your bubble burst sooner or later. And our job is to kind of burst that bubble for you, so it won't be a shock when it happens. I think the book of Habakkuk says this, an accurate conception of the Lord's person and program allows believers, put your name in the blank if you've trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, to not just trust Him for life after death, but to trust Him now, humbly and persistently in the ups and downs of life, uh, in His providential control, His design over all events now, and ultimately fully in an eternity separate from sin and suffering. You know, the now doesn't make sense apart from the not yet. And that's my story. I'm sticking to it. And I'll close with this. Uh, number one, you can see how important receiving Jesus is. You, you've got to have the gift of eternal life. You can't earn it. can't deserve it. Nobody's so good. They don't need the gift. Nobody's so bad they can't have it. 
Uh, the Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith, which is active, receptive trust. Not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works. So if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, that he died for you, he rose again, you can't save yourself by being good enough, but you do desperately need a Savior to forgive you. Trust in him alone. Lord Jesus, I can't do this myself. I want you to. I believe you died for me and rose again. I trust you in you alone. But for those of us who are believers, let me finish this way. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, God speaks to us in his word. God whispers to us in our pleasures. And God shouts to us in our pain. And that's where C.S. Lewis stopped. And I would say, what does he say to us in our pain? He says to us, Brad, you are really small. You don't really understand a lot. You are really fragile. You need me. I know more than you do, and you need me. You are tiny. I'm infinitely huge. Uh, while you can understand some critical truths about my person and program, you simply are not capable of understanding me and my purposes completely. But trust me, I got this. However, while you can't understand all the details of the whys and hows of life now, you can understand, this is God speaking as it were, and I don't speak for God in that sense, but I'm, I'm using that as a, as a vehicle to communicate something. It's as if God's saying, while you can't understand all the details of the whys and the hows of life now, you can understand that I understand. That's really what he says. You can understand that I understand. Uh, end of Job spends chapters looking at the physical universe and says, you can't even figure out how that works. How am I going to explain metaphysical reality to you? You know, it's like doing quadratic equations with a first grader who doesn't know one plus one yet. So God's saying, look, you're going to have to trust me on this. On the other side, I'll show you the mosaic. Right now you can't see it. You can't perceive it. You're not capable of it. But you can understand that I understand. And when you allow that to sink deep into your soul, you'll be right where I want you to be, right where you need to be, trusting and walking with me moment by moment. That's the book of Habakkuk. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, let your Holy Spirit move this truth about you and your ways deep into our souls and build a battleship of the soul so that we'll be able to ride out the storms uh, without just a grim resignation like a stark religious self-righteous Pharisee, but as a loving, uh, uh, humble person who rests in the God of our salvation for the trials and the triumphs and the pain and the pressures and the successes of the now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.